What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome to The Exchange, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans on this Friday, and here's what's ahead. A big rally before a big collapse. Two more notes out this morning echoing what Mr. Black Swan himself, Nassim Taleb, told us just yesterday on this show. How the market is feeling a bit like 2008. We'll ask our guests today if they agree, and if so, what you should do about it. Plus, with $4 trillion in options expiring today, there's one big FOMO trend developing in the options market. We'll tell you what it is and how to take advantage of it. And AI will bring a new level of speed and efficiency to all aspects of ad creation. That's what ad exec Mark Douglas is expecting. His firm just announced they're working on that very thing right now. Mark joins us to explain how he thinks AI will help more than hurt the advertising business. But we begin with today's markets and another rally uh, that's building somewhat. The Dow's up 77 points, about a quarter percent. Same for the S&P, 44.37. We're now up 26 percent from those October lows. The Nasdaq eking higher, just a two-point gain, a little bit of a counter trend move today. Gains across the board for the week, though. And by the way, I say counter trend, but really the trend for June has been a broader rally than just the Nasdaq. The Dow on pace for its longest weekly win streak since April. The S&P since November of 2021. The Nasdaq on pace for its longest win streak since March of 2019, believe it or not. And these are all the pretty hefty week-to-date gains. Quickly, let's check on the Treasuries as well. Again, 384 was the high tick over uh, after the Fed's meeting uh, initial decision on Wednesday, but we continue to see it trade lower from there, about 377. Um, 473, though, on the two-year, so keep an eye on this as it approaches a full point again. Also, check out shares of Kava down sharply today after soaring more than double in their trading debut yesterday. But again, let's talk about this. It priced at 22. You only got that price if you were in the IPO. It opened at 42. So anyone in the public who bought these shares who didn't get in on the offering is five bucks in the red right now as the stock falls about 15 percent. Kava, some concerns about profitability. We always get this kind of first day bump and then it takes a while, sometimes quarters, sometimes a full year for it to settle in and find its true valuation. And the bears on Wall Street haven't thrown in the towel just yet. In fact, a couple new notes today emphasize concern. The market is starting to resemble the heady peaks of 2000 or 2008. Mike Hartnett at Bank of America says we are not convinced we're at the start of a brand new shiny bull market. Feels more like a combo of 2000 or 2008, a big rally before a big collapse. Meanwhile, Chris Harvey at Wells Fargo says we are pulling out the 99-2000 playbook after the S&P pierced not only our 4200 year-end target, but also our soft landing target of 4420. And on our show yesterday, Black Swan author Nassim Nicholas Taleb also warned of echoes of the great financial crisis. This is actually something that resembles uh, uh, 2008, 2007, in the sense that we had a financial crisis. The reaction was to lower rates, so which is a temporary policy to cure a structural problem. Joining me now to react, Alan Boomer is Chief Investment Officer at Momentum Advisors, and Ed Yardeni is President of Yardeni Research. Welcome to both of you. Ed, where do you, what do you think after you hear these warnings and, cons- and concerns? I'm, I'm happy. I'm, I, I'm delighted to hear that the bears are still growling. Uh, it's when everybody's bullish that I get nervous. 
And uh, right now, this bull market, I think, uh, is, is bright and it is shiny. Uh, and I think it continues, uh, mostly because there's no recession. Uh, waiting for recessions like waiting for Godot never shows up. And I think that earnings are starting to pick up as profit margins are starting to improve. And I see all these bears are looking back to the past. I'm looking uh, also back to the past. And I see a similarity between the 2020s and the 1920s. So I, I view this as the beginning of the roaring 2020s. Uh, it started at the beginning of the decade, but the pandemic got in the way. But, Ed, I think everyone's bullish. I mean, maybe you can capture it scientifically better than I can, so I'll just use kind of anecdotal. But, I mean, you get laughed at now if you're bearish, right? People are like, what are you talking about? I, let's look at the fear, uh, fear and greed index. The last time I checked, we were pretty high up there. Yeah, extreme greed, 82. Right. Well, look, it's still a, a, a baby bull market. It just really got started on, on October 12th of last year. And at first, it was very broad-based. Uh, then we had the banking crisis, and it narrowed as the financials got whacked, and everybody ran into the mega cap eight. And then the bears said, well, it's too narrow a market, and it's going to take a dive. And instead, what happened is the market started to broaden out. I think the fact that it's broadening out is a proof positive that we're actually in a bull market, and people are getting more optimistic about the future. I mean, the future looks pretty good to me. Well, okay, I'm going to ask you one more, and then, Alan, I'm going to turn to you. And it's wonky, but it's not. I mean, what about jobless claims? They don't get any respect. Well, as we've had two weeks where they're, they're up, uh, and we've certainly had plenty of announcements over the past six months by companies that they're uh, cutting back on unemployment. Uh, but on the other hand, if you look at the job openings surveys, and it's not just the, the JOLTS report, there's also something like that in the Consumer Confidence Report, and there's something like that in the, Na in the National Federation of Independent Business uh, survey of uh, small businesses, small business owners, and they're all saying they're looking for workers. So I, I think that's actually uh, very telling that there's uh, some churn going on in the market, and that's what we're seeing with initial claim. But all, all in all, the job market remains really quite solid. It's probably slowing, but that would be welcome news for the stock market. Uh, Alan, are you as uh, bullish as Ed is right now? Uh, first of all, <laughs> Ed, it's great to see you. A big fan of your work. I am bullish, maybe not quite as bullish, but I think a lot of what Ed said makes a ton of sense. I think there's a lot of folks that have just been frightened out of this market, and it's easy to be afraid when waiting pays you 5%. Like cash yields are super high, bond yields are super high. And so, you know, I, I can see why folks are bringing up 2008 because it's comfortable to sit in cash, but you're missing out. There's a huge opportunity cost to sitting around in cash. I am cautious, but I'm optimistic. I do think that, you know, we're, we're in a really strong economy. The biggest thing I'm concerned about, really, it's the Fed sort of overreacting. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we want, we, we're seeing some news that looks good. While we celebrate that news, we also kind of worry that the Fed is going to get, you know, get roll up their sleeves and, and roll and raise hike, raise interest rates some more, which is probably one of our, our biggest worries. Yeah. And that, Alan, actually, I think you're echoing what some of the traders are worried about today. And they see, well, if crude's bottomed and if, you know, some of the soft commodities uh, are, you know, are rising because of drought issues or what have you know, could we all of a sudden be hitting an inflection point where inflation starts to pick up again? And can you imagine, you know, what a, a tighter Fed would do there? Oh, we already know what the Fed's going to do, right? The majority of the Fed governors right now are, you know, would, would like to see rates go higher uh, two more times this year, which, you know, really shocked a lot of folks. But you notice the market didn't really react because I think there's a disconnect between what the market views will happen and what the Fed says is going to happen. And this happens from time to time. The Fed 
has to talk. They have to use their, their bully pulpit to be able to talk markets down, to talk inflation expectations down. Uh, we just hope that they don't back it up with actual, actual rate hikes. I think we've done a lot in a short period of time. And, you know, with a very fragile banking system, you know, we don't want to keep seeing rates go higher and higher. I know you probably feel good about Adobe, uh, Oracle, you know, Salesforce, Intuit. These are a lot of the Alan Boomer stocks that have also been doing quite nicely lately. Ed, let me just ask you about your price target at this point, uh, as everyone's kind of scrambling to, to raise them. And a point that others have made a couple on the show lately about earnings is that they've, you know, as, as expectations or estimates have actually fallen since January. So I'm curious if you can kind of add that all together for us. Yeah, well, my target uh, really since uh, the end of last year for this year has been 4,600. So we're getting there a little faster than I, I would have uh, expected. And I, I would prefer that it doesn't get there too quickly because then I, I do have to make a decision of do I leave it there or do I raise it, do I lower it? But uh, I, I think that uh, on the earnings side, uh, we are on, on the high side of earnings, uh, mostly because uh, the earnings recession we've had was really a very soft one. And it was mostly, it was really all related to the profit margin shrinking. And I see that companies are starting to scramble here to increase their productivity, uh, to, to, to figure out how to uh, make things without having to just constantly raise, raise prices and, and wages. And I think consumers are starting to resist some of the price increases. So you put it all together, I think inflation is moderating. I think the cost side of the equation for companies is, is improving, uh, moderating. And therefore, I think profit margins are uh, probably bottomed, and that'll certainly help to give us a rebound in earnings, in my opinion. All right. We'll leave it there. Gentlemen, thank you both for your time today. We appreciate it. Ed Yardeni and Great, Alan you. Boomer. And let's talk a little bit more about this rally now. It's not just the magnificent seven tech stocks that are up big. Semis are also having a huge month. The SMH up more than 22 percent. That's the ETF. The small caps also getting in on the action on pace for their fifth straight week of gains. My next guest says the FOMO trade is alive and well as investors chase these rallies. Joining me now, Chris Murphy is Susquehanna's co-head of derivative strategy. Our own Bob Bassani is here as well. And before I dive into the, I guess, triple witching or whatever, and whatever else is going on, I noticed, uh, Chris, that Goldman's derivatives team this week put out a note warning they think we could see a big drop in the S&P in the next month. You, you, would you be on a similar wavelength to that or no? Well, I mean, I do think that the options, what they were saying, the options are underpricing the chance of a big drop. You know, volatility has obviously come in a lot and correlation is so low. Everything's moving in different directions that the S&P is not moving nearly as much. So I would agree that the options are underpricing the odds of a, uh, a sharp move lower, but I don't think it's a, a huge probability either way. Bob, how big a deal is the, I, I take it we don't have a quad witching anymore because there's no single stock futures. Explain to us what's going on today. That's right. That's right. So this is a, <clears throat> two events happen today. It happens four times a year. This is an expiration day. It's a it's a, now a triple witch. A triple witching is the quarterly expiration of stock and index options and index futures. We used to have single stock futures as well. There's not really none of them left, so that's why it's called a triple witch. This is not so much of a big event as it was 10 or 20 years ago uh, because there are so many different kinds of options out there, including weekly options, monthly options. There's even options that expire uh, uh, on the same day. So there's a vast universe of people who want to participate in derivatives who used to just have to use these quarterlies and now can use other ones. I think the more interesting one is potentially rebalancing at the close. We're going to have Palo Alto Networks kind of going into the S&P 500. That's kind of a big thing. Uh, we're going to see Dish come out. 
And then there'll be the rebalancing around companies who have been reducing their share count. Companies like Apple and Meta have been aggressively reducing their share counts. So the indexing companies that are out there, the S&P 500 index firms that Vanguard uses, uh, iShares use, they're going to be reducing their share count there. I think that'd be interesting towards the close. I, I don't think we're going to see a lot of price movement, but we might. We'll definitely see a lot of volume. In fact, even today, we're seeing much heavier than normal volume. Interesting. Chris, let's talk about some of the FOMO you're seeing in options. Maybe it's in the semi-space I mentioned. How would you take advantage? Sure. Yeah, we're seeing the uh, the upside calls really bid up as everyone's kind of chasing that performance and wants to be uh, involved. So what we're going to want to do is, you know, a lot of these, the IWM and the SMH, they've had a pretty big run already. So you might be a little bit nervous getting long here because of how much downside you see on the chart. So you're going to want to look at a call spread. So that's going to be buying a closer to where the stock ETF currently is call and taking advantage of those further out of the money calls. Those are really bid up. And in a call spread, you're selling those out of the money calls. So we're setting up a call spread, very limited uh, uh, cost. Uh, you know, you know what your risk is, the price that you paid. Uh, you don't have the downside uh, of the of the ETF pulling back, uh, and you get in for a pretty good um, uh, price because you take advantage of those upside calls that are really bid up. I also notice you're watching an area that I'm kind of uh, shocked at, or, or or I admire. I don't know what word to use. Delta is about to be up for the 16th straight session in a row. Um, are you seeing people now trying to lean against that, or are they pushing into that strength? You know, it's interesting. Uh, a little bit of both. So the Jets ETF, um, which is the, a bunch of the airlines, we are seeing some decent sized put trades there. Most likely, um, you know, long uh, airline players who are just are pretty happy about the move that's been made and they want to hedge some of it. Uh, on the flip side, uh, in Delta and United Airlines, we're seeing investors sell a downside put, basically saying, shoot, we missed this rally, but we'd love to be involved on a pullback. Uh, but also, buying a upside call spread. So using that put to finance the upside call spread and saying, if this thing keeps moving higher, I want to be involved as well. So that's a pretty attractive uh, strategy when you're saying, I'd love to buy a pullback, but I also don't want to miss a rally. Hmm. Bob, let me just turn to you with kind of the bigger picture here, which is that the S&P is basically back to where it was when the Fed first started hiking. And I don't think anyone had that on their bingo card. Yeah, I, here's what you need to ask right now. What is the catalyst for a pullback. I know you've had some doom and gloomers on recently. Ask yourself, what is the catalyst for a potential pullback? I don't mean 5% decline in the summer. Duh, that happens all the time. Yeah, that is not an interesting prediction. The S&P is up 15%. What would it take for it to be flat in the next two months? I mean, think about it. And, and it's right now, it's hard to think like the S&P would go back to flat in the next couple of months. Everybody screams at me, the valuations are high. Well, that is true. However, earnings estimates are starting to rise again. If that happens, you can argue for a valuation. The big issue is what ha the soft landing is winning, and that's the single most important thing. Employment remains strong. Earnings are holding up. Interest rates look like they're topping out, and we didn't even drop when the Fed threatened to do a couple of more additional rate hikes there. 
That means the soft landing is winning. So come up with a scenario, not a 5% summer correction, where we go back to zero again on the year. And right now, I think it's a little tough. I think the Bears have got a tough job right now. All right, gentlemen, thanks. Bob Bassani, Chris Murphy, we appreciate your time. Coming up, people are returning to the office, but will it be enough to save commercial office space? That trade getting demolished this year. And Morgan Stanley just wrapped up their annual CRE conference. The analyst joins us ahead with one trend he's still really bullish on. You can see the chart right there, up 23% this year. Plus, Amazon, Apple, and Tesla have been getting all the attention in the tech rally, but the gains have actually been pretty broad. The handful of names that haven't gotten the buzz but have also been soaring, that's ahead in Tech Check. And as we go to break, here's a look at the broader markets. We're off this morning's highs, but hanging on to a 54-point Dow gain. The S&P up a similar percentage, 7 points to 44.33. The Nasdaq's back in the red by 11. Russell's a similar drop, actually about three-quarters of 1%. Ten-year, 377. We're back after this. NetCredit is here to say yes to a personal loan or line of credit when other lenders say no. Apply in minutes and get a decision as soon as the same day. If approved, applications are typically funded the next business day or sooner. Loans offered by NetCredit or lending partner banks and serviced by NetCredit. Applications subject to review and approval. Learn more at netcredit.com slash partner. NetCredit. Credit to the people. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back. Troubles continue in the commercial real estate sector, particularly in office space. Even though more people are being called back to the office, Castle data still shows activity is only about half of pre-pandemic levels. I asked Acor's Warren DeHaan, they're one of the largest non-bank lenders to commercial real estate, about that yesterday. The issue with office is that there aren't discernible trends right now. We're still waiting to see how this plays out from a psychological and consumption perspective for us to determine if it's underwritable. Well, my next guest is fresh off Morgan Stanley's REITs conference this week, where office was the hot topic of discussion. Let's bring back Ron Camden. He's Morgan Stanley's REITs analyst. Ron, it's great to see you. What was the mood? Yeah, great to be here. I think it was a really interesting conference, and office was obviously the focus. To set the table, when we talk to investors, when you talk to office users, over the next three years, they expect to reduce their office space by about 10%. Uh, so if you think about being 88% occupied before COVID at 82% today and potentially going to 78%. So the mood was, I don't think investors were ready to step in yet in a big way. There will obviously be, obviously be some opportunities uh, down the line in special situations. But I think right now, most people remained on the sideline. And what do you do if you're a, you know, an office-focused REIT or a company with a lot of that exposure? Yeah, it's a good question. So there are some clear trends that are happening in the office space right now. Um, the most challenging has been on the West Coast. So think of downtown San Francisco, downtown LA. We're also hearing some deceleration in the life science leasing space. So larger deals not being done. So you sort of have to uh, play defense right now and you have to sort of tweak your rents to get occupancy. 
I think on the other side of that coin is if you look at the East Coast, if you look at Manhattan, if you look at Boston, you are seeing signs of activity. And for the operators that are able to sort of protect occupancy, uh, that's what I think investors are going to be able to gravitate to. Yeah, we were just showing Hudson Pacific. That stock down about 60% over the past year. More California-focused Boston properties, uh, less bad. You know, it's interesting you bring up life sciences because yesterday, Jonathan Litt, was, who, you know, is a longtime analyst, was looking through the REITs uh, for some longs. And he looked at Alexandria, expecting maybe to enter a position there. Ended up coming out with a short position. He was on Fast Money to discuss it. And kind of making this point, what's going on with life sciences? What, what's the macro that's driving now concerns about that part, which we all would think would be a relative source of strength in the office market? Yeah. So the large cap uh, life sciences users, you know, whether it's the Pfizer's or the Moderna's, are still doing fine, are still around. What's happened in the life science space is that the incremental demand drivers were always sort of the mid and smaller users. So as life sciences funding has sort of dried up, so you've taken that incremental user out of the market, and that's weighing on leasing activity. So right now, when you have the big users on pause and the smaller users facing a funding cliff coming in the back half of the year, that's putting some pressure on the leasing activity. And I think that's that's what's uh, putting an overhang on the sector. Sure. And Alexandria only down about 10 percent over the past year. So really would have a lot of catch up to the downside. Let's talk about some names you're still bullish on. Uh, well Tower, we mentioned that chart going into the break. That's more senior living, if I'm not mistaken, and kind of healthcare oriented or, or we call it kind of recovering from healthcare challenges. Talk to me about the fundamentals there and, and where else in, in real estate broadly do you think is still pretty well positioned? That's right. So we get this question a lot from investors, which is, where is pricing still accelerating in the real estate space? And senior housing is one of the few spaces. So if you think about revenue per occupied room, it grew about 7% in, in the first quarter of the year. And we think those trends can continue to improve throughout the rest of the year. What's important about that is you're growing twice as fast as sort of the rest of the REIT market. And this cycle, because of construction costs, because of delays, because of labor costs, there's been actually less supply coming online. So not surprisingly, when you have sort of both the demand and the supply tailwind, it makes for a pretty interesting picture. I think the other sector that came out at our conference was uh, senior uh, single family housing. Single family housing, because of the mortgage rates, it's been very, very tough to buy a home. So most people have been forced renters. So these are businesses that are operating with very, very good quality tenant, rent to income ratios five times covered. And you're also seeing sort of renewal rents in the 7 to 8% range. So anytime we can see a sector that's growing twice as fast organically without a supply headwind, we think it's pretty interesting. Yeah, and even in office, uh, Highwood, I think it is, is kind of the sunbelt. That's maybe where you're saying you might be focused for some opportunity. A lot of great stuff in here. Important time. Ron, thanks for joining us. We appreciate it. Thanks so much. Ron Camden with Morgan Stanley. Coming up, Meta getting a price target hike today over prospects of using AI in its ad business and Google announcing two new AI-powered ad features this week. We'll talk to an industry insider about how to play the arrival of AI in advertising and who could struggle as a result of it. Plus, time and again lately, we've heard almost just now we were talking about it, how older demographics are a key sales driver post-pandemic. There's one company that's made catering to them its main business. The CEO of Viking Cruises joins us ahead. As we head to break, here's the Dow heat map, where Nike, which has been a laggard lately, is one of the biggest gainers along with Visa. Disney, UNH, your biggest losers, as UNH and Humana remain under pressure this week. The exchange is back after this. 
CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. music clash. Uh, We've all heard of the Magnificent Seven, the mega cap tech stocks that have single-handedly driven the market higher this year, typified by NVIDIA, which is now up 200%. It's tripled. But what about the rest of tech? That's the subject of Tech Check today with Deirdre Bosa. And Deirdre, you've got some good stats for us. Yeah, so there's the mega caps, Kelly, and then there's just big tech, right? They've sort of come into place, and we talk so much about the Magnificent Seven that has been driving so much of the S&P and broader market gains this year, but these are one layer down. They're still stocks that many people are looking to because they are part of that generative AI hype cycle. They're right here, Adobe, Cisco, Oracle, Salesforce, AMD, Netflix, Broadcom, a mix of your legacy tech players, enterprise players that have updated themselves for a new era, as well as the chip makers, of course, the picks and shovels, and some consumer-facing names, Kelly. Um, We wanted to go beyond, and it turns out that it's not just the Magnificent Seven that has been driving these markets. All of these names, except for Cisco, are up between 50 and 90% this year. They have market caps between 200 and $350 billion. So they are massive, and they've also been driving the gains this year. Wow. So I guess the debate has been about broadening out, and you know, even if it is just you know, NVIDIA or this kind of trade, you know, how much further that can go. Just curious where people think kind of the next uh, stocks to watch are. Yeah, you know, Kelly, I read your newsletter this morning, too, with great interest. I loved it. You kind of looked at those macro factors, right, and said that this is sort of a weird time for a melt-up. But the narrative in tech, right, is that there's this huge secular shift towards generative AI, and that's going to lift, yes, the mega caps and the big tech, but maybe a number of other boats as well, right, some of the smaller names. We're even seeing some unprofitable tech really rebound this year. They haven't captured those 2021 levels. But this shift is thought to be so big, so important, like the internet or the mobile shift. Some people call it, it's like the industrial revolution, that that's a way that maybe this can be sustainable if this leadership in tech can be sustained. That's, of course, an open question. The market's looking for more proof of monetization. And a lot of these names are just kind of telling us, right? They're telling us about product launches, not putting hard numbers behind it aside from NVIDIA. You know, and the funny thing is I feel like Kava's frothier than NVIDIA. You know, when a company does a $3 billion <laughs> revenue raise yeah. in a single quarter, I mean, I, I don't even know the last time we saw a move of that scale in such a short period of time. <laughs> like, that is for real. I think they deserve all the credit in the world. But yeah, some other things I'm not so sure about. It does feel a little 2021-ish, doesn't it, when you see an IPO like that? But hey, that's good news for ARM, Instacart, some of the tech names that are looking to go out. Um, and, and I guess the thinking is that this time the bubble could be different because of that generative AI shift that everyone's trying to get in on. Fair enough. Deirdre, thank you. We always appreciate it. Our Deirdre Bosa. Coming up everywhere you turn, there are more media stories about discontent at Goldman Sachs and with CEO David Solomon in particular. But one of our banking reporters sees a different narrative shaping up. Those details are next on The Exchange. Welcome back to The Exchange. A tenth up, a tenth down. Still, we're coming off a pretty big week for the markets, although ending on kind of a 
Should we call it a whimper? The Dow's a 42 session high was 181. The Nasdaq down 15 right now. Here are some of the movers that we're focused on today. Another day, another analyst note on SoFi. We got two today, actually. B of A and Piper Sandler, both downgrading the stock to neutral on valuation concerns. Both still positive longer term, thanks to the end of that student loan moratorium. Piper lowered its price target to 650 from 8. B of A upped theirs slightly by 50 cents to $10. SoFi shares are up about 8% this week and have nearly doubled year to date. It is down 7.5% today. And Humana is warning that insurance costs will be at the high end of its previous guidance. That's due to a jump in demand for things like outpatient surgeries and dental services. Humana is down 13 percent this week, which would be its worst week since early 2022. It's down 4 percent today. And it follows similar commentary from United Health earlier this week, which said seniors are catching up on knee and hip surgeries as COVID concerns wane. UNH, also one of the S&P's biggest laggards with a six and a half percent drop this week. And we'll end on iRobot, which is surging as UK regulators approve Amazon's $1.7 billion purchase of the smart vacuum maker. Its shares are up about 20% on increased deal hopes today. Over to Tyler Matheson now for a CNBC News update. Tyler. Kelly, thank you very much. And here is your CNBC News update. The gunman who opened fire at a Pittsburgh synagogue in 2018 killed 11 worshipers found guilty on dozens of federal charges today. The verdict in Robert Bauer's trial came down after just five hours of deliberation. He had pleaded not guilty not guilty to 63 federal criminal counts connected to the deadliest anti-Semitic attack in U.S. history. Some of the charges are punishable by death. President Joe Biden announced his pick to take over the CDC today. Biden tapped Mandy Cohen to fill the spot, which will be vacated by Rochelle Walensky at the end of the month. Walensky stepping down after leading the country through the thick of the COVID-19 pandemic. And the basketball legend Michael Jordan is selling his majority stake in the NBA's Charlotte Hornets. Jordan will retain minority ownership as part of the deal with wealthy investors Gabe Plotkin and Rick Schnall. The uh, Hornets have struggled under Jordan's leadership. He's a better player than he was an owner, appears, uh, making the playoffs just two times, Kelly. Back to you. I still wonder if he made made out pretty good, given where valuations are now. I'm sure he did. I'm sure he did just fine. (laughs) Tyler, thanks. I'll see you next hour. Goldman Sachs, one of the weakest big banks this year. Shares are down about a percent and a half since January, second to Bank of America, which is down 11 percent. And splashy headlines about CEO David Solomon abound this week. The Journal reporting Goldman is at war with itself. The Daily Beast publishing a piece titled Goldman Execs Hate Their CEO Who Won't Stop DJing. But CNBC.com's Hugh Sun says not so fast. While Goldman has had its share of headwinds, there's no indication Solomon is at risk of an ouster anytime soon. Hugh. Uh, I don't know. Sometimes where there's smoke, there's fire. Indeed. And we've been, you know, we've been on top of a lot of these stories over the months. So you can understand why we'd be interested in this one. Um, You know, so the reporting out there that the board potentially is reevaluating its opinion of Mr. Solomon. um, You know, there is a lot uh, to unpack. And first of all, we want to say it is not clear to me that there's any kind of uh, imminent risk of ouster for, for Mr. Solomon. What I will say, though, is, you know, if you ask the question, is Goldman a happy place to be right now? Uh, and you put up the, the chart there earlier, they're not doing that well. It's because they're the most tethered to Wall Street businesses of trading, investment banking, which have been slow. Uh, and there is a slow bleed from a lot of these uh, Wall Street firms where they have to lay off people, you know, sort of these rolling layoffs. That's not happy. Uh, Goldman in particular has a billion dollar push to cut expenses. Uh, and so you have bankers who are used to flying around the world and, and whining and dining executives who now have to suddenly account for their and get a pre-permission for some of their expen- expenses. That doesn't have uh, you know, sort of a lot of happiness around for Goldman. 
Um, and so, you know, yes, it is clear to me that I, I, there are uh, undercurrents of displeasure. You know, we've broken a lot of stories with Marcus and their consumer efforts. Partners are still grumbling about that. They're grumbling about, uh, you know, and this is common, uh, you know, their cut of the bonus pool, hmm. you know, for instance, things like that, compensation. And I think the, the meatiest and most substantial thing that they're complaining about is his uh, leadership style. So when David Solomon uh, came in and decided to, to become a change agent as CEO, he said, I'm going to be much more top down. I'm going to be a lot more like JP Morgan and a lot of other corporates. Uh, rather than their history, which is a partnership in which his predecessor, Lloyd Blankfein, was the senior partner. So uh, just, you know, relatively slightly elevated above all the other 400 partners who had a lot of sway. And now you have Solomon saying, look, I'm, you know, clearly the CEO. Um, I'm not going to bother trying to get consensus from you guys. I'm going to tell you what, what the new rules are and the, and the rules of the game, and you're going to follow. And that's clearly caused a lot of rumbling. And, and you know, as you would understand, it has taken the power from some of these partners and, and consolidated it in, in Mr. Solomon. How would you say that, that people or that we or that, you know, how would we grade David Solomon's tenure so far compared with a Lloyd Blankfein or some of the, who was Hank Paulson before him, some of their predecessors as, since it's been a public company? So, Mr. Solomon, you know, he probably gets a B or an A minus on the things that you expect them to be good at. Wall Street, you know, uh, advisory, investment banking, trading, they've gained share from other folks, particularly Europeans. Uh, when you talk about, obviously, these harder things to do, which used to be markets and consumer banking and now is asset and wealth management, which I believe he gets the time to, by the way, execute on their plan and see if it works, um, you know, that's sort of incomplete, right? And with Marcus, that's probably, you know, something like a C or, or, or you know, or even an F, because he used up credibility uh, in the past year. He went whole hog into this business and then just as quickly cut bait, you know, as we've reported. So there is, um, there is certainly, you could say that he's burnt up some of his credibility doing that. And you might say, or, or, or the reporting might be that the, you know, his departure isn't imminent, but what should we expect his typical tenure length to be? And at some point, you know, if people are agitating for change, maybe they're not going to overthrow right now, but what could that change start to look like? So, you know, good to re remind you, he's chairman of the board, so he's consolidated a bunch of, uh, of the power. The most likely successor would be his president, uh, Mr. Waldron, John Waldron. So uh, his, his uh, you know, his person, his uh, ordained deputy. And so, you know, and the question is, if it ultimately got to that point, obviously we're not saying uh, it's anywhere near that point, but are, is there enough space between those two men? Right. Is, is Waldron potentially the person uh, that you could, you know, see in that position? You could argue that he is like Solomon, but without some of the extracurriculars, uh, the DJing, for instance. Uh, and so, you know, that could be, uh, you know, that could be possible. However, you know, it could be years uh, before any of that. I mean, they just uh, talked about their new strategic plan in February. So I think he gets some time to execute on this plan. I mean, if you look at the stock uh, performance of Goldman Sachs over, since his tenure began in October 2018, it's not, it's not bad. And they've done fairly well. And I think that gives him enough credibility to go forward. Very interesting. Great reporting, Hugh. Appreciate you bringing that to us. There's more on CNBC.com. Hugh Sun. Coming up, Google launching two new AI-powered features for its advertisers earlier this week. But on the very same day, the European Commission hit the company with antitrust charges over its ad tech. We'll discuss that and how the landscape is changing with Mark Douglas, CEO of Mountain, which just launched its own AI ad features. That's next.
It's been another big week for AI and advertising. On Wednesday, Google launched two new AI-powered tools that will let advertisers automatically find the best ad placements across the company's services. But on the very same day, the EU also charged Google on anti-competitive ad practices and said it could see a breakup of its ad tech business. And just this morning, B of A raised its price target on Meta, saying that company is well-suited in the generative advertising business thanks to its AI integration. And it's not just the mega-cap players. My next guest just announced his firm's first AI-powered tools. Joining me now is Mark Douglas. He is the CEO of Mountain. Mark, are you in Cannes? I will be in Cannes next week. I'm actually in the Maldives vacationing before Cannes. Uh, having a you know, great time. It's, a, it's a tough one, this one. But uh, no, because I know that Cannes is going to be a place where people are really bringing attention to some of these new tools. How transformative are they? Like, Give us an example of kind of ad business before and ad business after AI. Well, I think what Mountain, what we're focused on initially is the creative end of it. And so providing tools that make building creative and getting a lot of versions of creative a lot easier, a lot less time consuming. We're orienting those actually towards professionals um, to make the professional creator just so much more productive. And then, but I think what you're also going to see is the whole media buying process is going to become more and more automated, which is a big change for the industry. And, And what are you guys specifically doing? Is it Viva? Yeah, so we call it Viva. And so the idea here is there's a lot of steps in the creative process, everything from storyboarding to maybe there's some um, seconds or even 10, 20 seconds you need for a commercial. And so you can go into Viva and you can mix in essentially stock video, generative video, you can storyboard so the customer can see what they're gonna get before they get the finished product even if you're doing production. So we just want to take the entire creative process and streamline it and make it a lot faster so customers get know exactly what they're getting and they get a lot more versions of it at the end. If advertising becomes a tool, you know, that can be tagged on to any platform, is the creative industry itself at risk here? I don't think so. I, you know, there's obviously a lot of people who think that AI, you know, kind of threatens the livelihood of a lot of people. I'm more in the Mark and Driesen camp where I think the productivity gains are actually going to just make every, you know, are going to create more jobs. And, and like I said, we're centering what we do around the professional um, because I think at the end of the day, you as a consumer of this stuff, you don't want to become a videographer. What you want is your videographer to produce what you want in a lot less time and get you exactly what you wanted at the end. And so we're, we're focused more on that. And we think that's where it's going to go. It sounds like it would be fun to play around with, honestly, just you know, to kind of just see what these tools could do. So let me ask you, who do you think are the winners across, you know, big tech or some of the platform, you know, and who are the losers as we enter this new uh, age of this technology? Well, you know, so everyone is initially thinking, obviously, OpenAI and and Microsoft and Google. There's a huge open source um, effort underway in the AI arena that I think has developed so fast that it's a little below the surface. But in two, if you think back to 2000 when Google launched, they had like four years to perfect search before anyone really paid attention. Or And now you're not getting that. It's like three months and OpenAI is already getting significant competition from like open source developers. And so I think it's gonna play out a lot differently than people think. I think open source, free AI, open source gonna play a big role in how AI develops. And still benefit the big tech platforms? 
Yeah, I mean, at the end, I think they benefit in some way. You know, a really interesting thing is um, Facebook released an early version of the AI platform, and it unknowingly or kind of without their cooperation got leaked. And now there's all these open source developers developing around Facebook's platform. <laughs> And Facebook keeps whatever those developers create. Some people think they did it deliberately. <laughs> and so the, so basically the open source development makes a lot more competitive and ultimately the big platforms make it usable for the average consumer. So I think it's a win-win. And But it's not going to be just this like one winner like you had in search. Well, I remember Jim Cramer early on saying he thinks advertising is going to be the biggest area of impact for AI. And, and everything you're saying, it sounds like that's going to be proven right. Mark, thanks for your time. We appreciate it. Oh, oh, we, what are we mentioning here, Tor? Stock draft? Stock draft, Mark. You and Ryan are in third place right now. Uh, your <laughs> Lululemon and uh, Netflix are up over 17% since April. So you, you, I don't know if we say take a bow, but, you know, you're up there. <laughs> well, I'd want to win, so <laughs> I'll keep paying attention. All right, keep eyeing that Lulu, uh, making those shows. All right. Mark Douglas, thanks so much for your time today. Always appreciate it. Still ahead, if you were wondering just how impactful the spending power of folks over the age of 50 is, check out this new ad from wine brand Claude Dubois. It not only suggests that the new cool Target demo is older people, it also ends with this line. Claude Dubois, decades of experience for people who know what it's like to live a little. Decades of experience for people who know what it's like to live a little. We'll speak with the chairman of Viking River Cruises about the spending power of boomers and traditionalists next. Welcome back to The Exchange. One under-the-radar engine powering the economy right now are older consumers. An AARP study showing people over the age of 50 comprise nearly 40% of global GDP. And one company capitalizing on the boomer spending surge, Viking Cruises. The River Cruise Company already exceeding 2019 revenue levels, bouncing back after a tough few years, planning an aggressive expansion. For more, I'm joined in an exchange exclusive by Tor Hagen, Viking Cruises founder and chairman. Tor, welcome. When did you found this company? Well, we're at 25 years uh, last year, so it's been quite a ride. And of course, it's nicer to talk about travel today than two years ago. Well, and in, in those 25 years, would you say that the spending power of your demographic is higher now than you've ever seen before? Yeah, we were, we were, uh, we were lucky or uh, clever, whatever you call it, but we from the outset focused on grown-up people. And we have taken a lot of, uh, our product is well designed for, for uh, adult people. So you can say we don't allow children on board, we don't have casinos. We appeal to, I call it the thinking person. Uh, and that has been very, very favorable for us. I'm trying not to chuckle when you talk about grown-ups and the thinking person, but, you know, the vibe comes across in your advertisements. You're looking for people who are interested in history and culture and creating a certain vibe around those experiences. What's the kind of ticket price we're talking, and what are the expansion plans you have now? Yeah, the, the ticket prices vary. Uh, you know, typically it's uh, $7,000 for a week cruise wow. is, a, is a good price. Now, we are different from others because many of the public cruise lines live from getting people on board the ships and then uh, try to sell them something where on the ships. We take the approach that people should pay in advance, know what they're paying, and then get exactly what they've been paid for. And I think that's, that's uh, served us extremely well. So you can say during these uh, last 10 years or so, we have grown at 25% per year. Uh, I think there are more... There are more and more people of, of the right age category. When I started the company, I was 54. 
and that's 25 years ago, so don't do the addition. <laughs> but uh, but it's, it's more of us. And I think we have come to realize that uh, we don't need things anymore. We need experiences. You know, there's, somebody's told me the other day, we have so many closets full of stuff we don't need, also called luxury. But I think the true luxury is when you can go on a, a cruise ship or an ocean ship and you can experience new destinations uh, and new people. And here, Viking is a bit different from others again because our main destination is Europe uh, with 60% of our, 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 our uh, itineraries. The Caribbean for us is only 4%. If we flip to the public cruise lines, it's exactly the other way around. So, so I think we have people want experiences. They're prepared to go uh, uh, longer away from home. Uh, I, I took my first vacation in this 25-year period over Christmas, <laughs> and I went to Antarctica. Uh, I must say it's a phenomenal experience. But we want something we haven't been been to before, and. And I think we have been very, very fortunate. Tor, also, I, the pandemic uh, <laughs> pandemic was, of course, terrible. But I dare say we came out of that uh, much earlier than anybody else. So already in 2022, we were back to the revenue levels we had in 2019. And I think this is re related to the way we behaved during the pandemic, both towards our guests and to our staff. So we took action very early. We put PCR labs on our ships. We behaved very responsibly. We we. We can think long term. We are family, more, more or less family owned company. So we don't worry too much about the quarters. Uh, we worry about what's right for the customer. Would you ever go public? Uh, you never know. You know, at, at one stage, it may be the right thing to do. But I, could, I can assure you, if, if, if we became a public company, we would not think about the quarters. We would like to think about what's right for the long term. That's how we create shareholder, shareholder value. Well, listen, what you've built, and uh, I hope to be traveling like you when I, you know, I won't do the math out loud, but when I'm your age and able to have those experiences, uh, I, and everybody else is obviously trying to go after the same thing. Taurus and Hagen, thanks so much for joining us to explain a little bit about the business. We appreciate it. Well, thank you very much, Kelly. Founder, CEO of Viking Cruises. Let's get a quick check on those cruise stocks he mentioned. They've had a big rally this week with Carnival up more than 21%, Norwegian 13%, Royal Caribbean underperforming only up 5%. The enthusiasm, as he mentioned, unabated. That does it for The Exchange, everyone. For more analysis on markets and the economy, you can sign up for my newsletter by using that QR code or head over to cnbc.com slash newsletters. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.